Welcome to Eat, Sleep, Wine, Repeat, a podcast for all you wine lovers who, if you're like me, just cannot get enough of the good stuff. I'm Yanina Doyle, your host, brand ambassador, wine educator, and sommelier. So stick with me as we dive deeper into this ever-evolving, wonderful world of wine. And wherever you are listening to this, cheers to you. Hello and welcome back to part two with Paul Kalamkiarian, who is the owner of the original Wine of the Month Club. Now, I'm really excited for you to listen to this one. It is a goodie. So instead of focusing on a specific region or specific grapes, we are going to be talking about wine films, wine books, wine fraud, wine health, loads of facts throughout this. We'll be discussing the judgment of of Paris, an iconic moment in history that changed everything for the Californian wine industry. We're going to be talking about the Sideways movie and how that specific film changed the sales dramatically for Pinot Noir and for Merlot. So much in this episode, so pour yourself something super tasty, put your feet up and enjoy. So what I want to talk about now, I want to focus on the US modern history because you're going to take me through some of the changes and you've already touched on in the episode before, Judgment of Paris. So Mm -hmm. do you want to tell the story of that? Because I think many people probably still don't realise how iconic that was and how it changed things for Californian winemakers. It's an incredible story and I'll try to be as brief as possible because I've yeah. studied it in depth and I've had the architect on the show and I had I had the only journalist to to show up at the tasting on the show as well but Amazing. there were three events in the, the consumption of wine in America, in America that have changed things one of them was of course the judgment of Paris and that brought wine to the forefront we'll get granular that in a second the other was uh, the release of uh, the 1990 uh, morally safer 60 minutes episode on red wine and the Mediterranean diet Mm-hmm. And then the last thing, which is phenomenal to me, is the release of the movie Sideways. <laughs> I think it was 2004. Yes. I'm not drinking any Merlots. Yeah, changed everything. Changed everything. <laughs> but the Jesuit of Paris is a very important part of the thing. Because, you know, wine in America was very young still. Even though it, wine came to America, to California in the 1700s, actually in Southern California, made its way to Napa in the late, late 1700s, early 1800s. And then Prohibition cut, shut down everything, virtually everybody, except for manufacturers of sacramental wine. So as the, as the industry started to rebuild, uh, there were a lot of dormant dead wineries. One of them was Chateau Montalena in Calistoga, and it was purchased by a family, uh, Jim Barrett, who was an attorney in Southern California, a friend of my father's, uh, wine tasting buddies and, and neighbors. And they didn't buy it to get in the wine business. Um, they got it because it was an agricultural tax credit as an investment. Oh, really? And here's this incredible winery. If you've ever seen pictures of it, it's the most beautiful thing you've ever seen, cut, cut in the hillsides in Calistoga. So that, that sort of set the stage for, for Jim Barrett. He'd only made the, one, the wine that won, and I'll talk about it in a second. It was only the second vintage out of the winery. Stephen Spurrier was an Englishman who had been in, uh, you know, of, of means. He wasn't, uh, his family had money. He was on tour in Paris having some fun with some friends, walked into a wine shop bought Cave de Madeleine uh, and started a wine career for himself. And in 1976, he decided to, to, to expose with, Patrick, with Patricia Gallagher, an American, who was helping him with his wine school, 
to expose French judges, the top French judges of the time, to American wines. And late in the game, like I think even days before, maybe even that day, they decided to make it a, a tasting a judgment, a pairing, I mean, a, a, a taste off. Brown bag the wines, put them in different bottles, pour them into the judge's thing and see what happens. Pretty dicey, pretty risky thing. Uh, and that's what he did. So he came to America. And if you read the if you read George Tabor, who's the only journalist who happenstance decided to go to the Judgment of Paris in 1976 in May to see what was going to go on, and that changed his life forever because he was the only one that could write about it. So his book is called The Judgment of Paris by George Tabor. It's a fascinating book on wine history. Uh, and so he, 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 you know, I said, I asked him on the show, I said, are you trying to tell me, George? He goes, I didn't, I didn't know. I wasn't sure I was going to go. He goes, but I was, I decided to go. I said, you're trying to tell me that if you're walking down Champs-Élysées and some very good looking French woman stopped you and said, let's go have a drink. You wouldn't have gone. He goes, hell no, I wouldn't have gone. He goes, I wouldn't wow, have had a drink. Wow, can you imagine? Thank God, <laughs> thank God there was no beautiful woman in the way then. Right, exactly. So, so anyway, they, they did the tasting. Now, mm-hmm. Stephen Spreer came to America. One of the unsung heroes of the story is a woman named Joanne Dupuis, who still lives in Napa. She's 94, who was tapped to take Stephen Spurrier around the Napa Valley to find the wines that he was going to send to Paris to do the judgment. And she was the one that took him to uh, Fremark Abbey, to Chateau Montalena, and to Stag's Leap and others to mm-hmm. find the wines. And they took the wines to Paris. They sat the judges down. And I don't know how grand they want to get, but there's an amazing story about how they found out uh, who won. But... They tasted the whites first. It was an unorthodox way of tasting the wines, but they were certainly brown bagged, and there's all kinds of statisticians that will argue some of the results, but <laughs> it, it is what it is. And Chateau Montalena came out on top. It beat the Burgundy. It beat the finest Burgundies at that time out of Stephen Spurrier's store, mm-hmm. these upstart Californians. The French were furious at that moment because they released the results first of the white wines, and then they went to the reds. So the French were bound and determined judges were not going to let the Americans win the red side. (laughs) But lo and behold, they poured the wines and and (laughs) out comes on top comes the Stag's Leap Cabernet that was uh, made by Warren Winiarski and that sent everybody into a tizzy. It got very little notoriety. It was one column uh, without a byline in the Time Magazine America in the June 7th edition of 1976. It actually took 12 more years for Mr. Barrett to retire from his law practice uh, to go full-time at Chateau Montalena. That's that's the slow creeping of the popularity. But mm. it set the world on fire. There, it, Steven Spurrier will tell you on my podcast that judges actually lost their jobs. You know, they were Psalms. They were... Uh, uh, no, really? Uh, yeah, they're hospitality leaders in their hotels and things. Some of them lost their jobs because they allowed that to happen. Well, effectively, yeah, for anyone who's listening right now, Chateau Mouton Rothschild was in the list of wines yep. that were tasted. Chateau Aubriand, these are the first mm-hmm. growths of Bordeaux. And then Stag's Leap Wine Cellar comes along. Mm-hmm. And um, and I don't know, you're going to have to tell me. So I know this was the 1973. I know that the majority of the wines were only, some of them had only three-year-old vines or four-year-old vines, like all also, the wines were really, really young as well, you know, I think. And you said already the, the Montalena was only at second vintage. That's correct. Uh, for Montalena, 72, we actually had the wine, the 72 Chardonnay in the Wine of the Month Club at the wine shop in Palos Verdes. Uh, the 73 was the second vintage of Mike Gergich, the famed Mike Gergich as the winemaker, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which is, uh, you know, another 
whole different story, which is an amazing story of immigration. And uh, Warren Winiarski's, I think it was the first picking, the first leaf of that vineyard that that was made, or the second leaf. It was very young. As Andrew Telchev was part of his team yeah. on when to pick, et cetera. And so that did, uh, that will blow all the theories in the water about you know young vines not being able to produce decent grapes. And maybe it's a testimony to the terroir. Maybe it's a testimony to the to the soil and the winemaker. But um, and I I don't know all the results of the final of the retasting. I think they did one of twenty years and thirty years. Uh, the Californians won again, but I think that it was the Ridge Vineyards Cabernet that that survived, uh, you know, the time over the other ones, but still, but still won, which is just, just amazing story. Uh, I've been able to piece together. I've had Violet Gergich on the show. I've had Bo Barrett on the show, the son of the great Jim Barrett. I've had um, uh, Stephen Spurrier and uh, George Tabor, uh, and his George's story is really really fun too. So. So that that's one of the major, uh, you know, the 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 initial part of California. I think there were twenty five wineries in Napa at the time. Okay, something like that, twenty five to fifty. Oh, and most, each, okay. there were fifty. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was really mm-hmm. small. And now there's you know over seven hundred in Napa alone, four thousand <laughs> in California. But oddly, you already brought it up. One of the major marketing changes in wine in Calif- in, Amer- in the world was Morley Safer's release of the in 1990 that the Mediterranean lifestyle included a couple glasses of red wine every night to clear your arteries. And of course, mm-hmm. slow food and olive oil and those things. But the one that's bizarre is the Sideways movie written by Rex Pickett, uh, which is a great story. That it, The story's about him. Uh, uh, the, the author that wrote the book Sideways, his name was Rex Pickett. He's been on the show too. He, it's really his. It was really his life in the beginning. He would go to uh, Santa Monica and he would go there late to a tasting room and he would taste Pinot Noir with the with the with the bartender and and, and they gave him a discount for being the last person in the door kind of stuff. Oh, really? And, uh, he used to go. To, he used to go to San Inez and stay at that hotel. He 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 literally single handedly made the Hitching Post restaurant famous. And the the, the one scene. I mean, it's like if you go back and watch the movie, it's like ten seconds when Miles <laughs> says, "I'm not drinking effing Merlot, no effing Merlot." Anybody that buys Merlot, I'm leaving, <laughs> and they're in the parking lot, literally clobbered Merlot sales mm-hmm. up until I'm going to say a couple of years ago. Really? Wow. Yes. Wow. And Pinot Noir was impossible to get at a price that was worth anything, and now that's changed. And it's fascinating that some playwright can change the consumption of America, maybe the world. And the irony of the movie is, I don't know if you remember seeing it, but at the very end, he's sort of down and out, and he's in a diner. He's got a, a plastic amber tumbler, and he's got a, a bottle of Cheval Blanc 1962, one of the famed vintages for that Santa Million. Mm-hmm. And, the, uh, and, of course, there's almost 100% Merlot. <laughs> so <laughs> <laughs> Nothing like ironic. But you know, yeah, so that's so literally, just for anyone to know, that came out in 2004. And so what you're yes. saying is from 2004, Merlot sales dropped off the edge until maybe, what, 2018, something like that. Yeah. That's pretty poor Merlot. I had a customer tell me the other day, I don't drink Merlot. Wow. And they do. For... They just don't even realize. But I bet they have a of course. right bank but a Bordeaux, don't they? Yeah. <laughs> do, you, do, you want some, do you want some fun facts? Yeah. And you probably already know. This is not wine related. Did you know that George Clooney actually auditioned to be Jack, one of the main characters? Really? You know no, that? I didn't know that. So apparently, George Clooney... 
um, auditioned, but they decided they didn't want him because he was just too famous, which I can understand. And mm-hmm. instead, uh, he Tom, Thomas Hayden Church was given the role. And apparently, he stripped naked in the audition because when they were talking about what the character was and blah, 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 it was mentioning him having to go, go in his birthday suit. So he did it. And they said that he was the only actor to strip down naked okay, and do funny. his audition and he got and he got the job that is so i've never heard that that is great mm, it is that. a good story there you go and another fun fact because i've been looking this up because i was just intrigued um was that the wine unfortunately was not cheval blanc which we can imagine it was not any of the nice wine and they were drinking a really sugary grape juice and poor thomas apparently got really sick drinking this wine <laughs> well it wasn't wine it was grape juice disgusting sugar yeah, right. juice yeah so yeah so the luxury of that movie everyone is not true at all in fact as well there's a famous scene where they're all dining together and they all got food poisoning <laughs> in real oh, life oh really yeah it, well, yeah that one yeah. scene they're all in the restaurant there's four of them and they're talking and oh, that's funny I, I didn't know that it, I've never heard that Rex, mm. Rex didn't tell me that story well you know it's not wine related it's just movie related so there you go for any but movie still. buffs just a little yeah yeah add it, add it in but at least it helped Pinot Noir I guess as well and Pinot Noir being one of the most fascinating grapes in, in the world of wine of course uh, that is the basis of Burgundy which is my current passion okay a very expensive passion sadly to figure out but I have I've had this fascination, and I and I never actually I didn't uncover this with Rex when we were talking because that's it really was truly his fascination. And California has some amazingly diverse charactered Pinot Noir, but there's something about Burgundy where you know across the street, you know, maybe a two hectare vineyard with the same winemaker creates this dramatically different wine mm. with the same environmental conditions, the same weather, the same picking day, everything else. But the only thing that's different is it's across the street. And how did the monks know this? How did the monks of the 12th century? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. They didn't have tools. They didn't have spectrometers. They didn't have anything. They had a lot of time, <laughs> but they didn't have... <laughs> but that must be it. Planting it, waiting for the vine to be ready, tasting the wine, saying this wine is better than that. Well, let's pull out those rubbish ones. It's, it, it has to be trial and error. Hundreds yeah. and hundreds of years ago. And a lot of patience. It's amazing to me. Absolutely. But then the wines they were drinking then would not have been like the wines that we drink now, right? Wouldn't you want to figure that out? I mean, I was just talking to Peter Mondavi of Charles Krug, and he was saying that they that one of their final early 50s wines got 100 points uh, recently. And not recently, but, you know, a few years ago. And I'm like, mm-hmm. okay, that's interesting. They didn't have sorting tables with, with lasers and, and optical character recognition, you know, optical recognition of bad grapes and lizards and stuff. Wouldn't you want to taste, like, if you could bring back a current bottling you know without the bottle age forward and put them next to today's wines made with some technology and really see how they fare mm, absolutely i mean I, I just like go back in time people always say what do you what, you know who name a dead person you'd like to have dinner with i'm just like I, not only that it's like what are you drinking at that time <laughs> <laughs> Which wine would you yeah, like to drink? Right, I mean, exactly. oh, do you have an answer for that? Is there an old, vintage, specific wine that you would like to have tasted? Well, I just came up with that thought in the first place, but I would certainly want to go back to early Burgundies, mm-hmm. uh, maybe during um, you know Charlemagne's time, okay. and when they owned the vineyards, to just see what what was expected, because it's such an. I mean, when it comes down to it. The technologies are strictly sort of the periphery of winemaking. The bottom line is, how good is the grape when it comes from the vineyard Mm -hmm. and the yeast structure? 
and the, let nature take its place. So winemakers should get out of the way, not modify. Mm. So really, they they didn't deal with much different than we are today. They just didn't have the way to, you know, these. I mean, these. I don't know if you ever seen these optical sorting tables and what they do. Yes, it's crazy. Yeah, yeah. But and they but, shake really. Yeah, it's it's, it's amazing right. the technology now. But I wonder if it really matters that much. <laughs> <laughs> I guess sometimes <laughs> stripping back to basics, right? Maybe yeah, we do right. overcomplicate things too much. So tell me then, you know, Pinot Noir is your new love, which is not a surprise for many wine drinkers, wine lovers. Have you found some Pinot Noir that we can afford? <laughs> well, there's more now than well, there was. Mm-hmm. I always say to everybody, you know, there's some fantastic examples in Leda, uh, in Chile, mm-hmm. and also I'm absolutely loving some Pinot Noir in the Hemelinard and the Elgin region in South Africa. For me, wow. those two regions are really showing amazing quality where they they do some... In fact, there's a... There's an amazing, there's two wines by Catherine Marshall in South Africa, and she does a Pinot Noir on sandstone, and then a Pinot Noir on, ooh, something out the stone, some, anyway, two different soils. And so you can compare and see, okay, right, how is the Pinot Noir compared to its soil type? And these wines are, you know, I think those wines specifically are probably 20 pounds retail, but you know, Mm. there are 15 pound retail Pinots coming out of Chile Mm -hmm. and South Africa that are more than drinkable, that are beautiful, that have complexity. And I find from 20, 25 pounds from there, they start getting super, super interesting. But you know, California now is getting really expensive. Oregon Mm -hmm. is getting ridiculous. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'm just wondering where's the pockets of, where are the pockets of value of Pinot Noir? in california there there are some california pinot noirs that are coming from large wineries that are pretty pretty good now there's two reasons why there are there's affordable pinot noir one is Mm -hmm. they're just made affordable and of course that generally reduces the complexity and maybe some of the structure but then there's also you know the the regular marketing of wine where you know there's some really really interesting deals are brought to brought here and brought to other restaurants and brought to retailers of wine that just got stuck somewhere they didn't couldn't sell it they made too much there's a whole there's a million reasons as you know and so you, i did a wine from Ternion here fabulous pinot noir tri-county pinot uh, which is kind of an interesting idea which and, pinot it's called Ternion, t-e-r-n-i-o-n okay so things like that that we find the petaluma gap being a district i've loved uh, yes wines from there okay um, mm-hmm and I think your comment about the Chilean Pinots is a very valid one. Up until, I'd say, about five years ago, most Pinot Noir from South America was mm, red yeah, wine. Yeah, hit or miss. Yeah. <laughs> Zero elegance. And I think Patagonia, as you know, Pinot Noir being the great conduit of the minerals and soil content that there's grown in, it goes back to that same comment Michelle Roland made, is that it takes some time to understand how to do it. And all mm-hmm. of a sudden, you're right, the Chilean wines are starting to express themselves. Uh, particularly the Patagonia, a lot of biodynamic stuff being grown down there. Mm-hmm. So I think it's a wonderful example of value-oriented Pinot. Connoisseur is another one from the South America that's got high standards of quality of uh, Pinot Noir. But it's such a finicky grape, it's so hard to to manage sometimes. But there's there's quite a few. Uh, this There's one I just did called... Um, now you got to think. There you go. Put you on yeah, the I gotta spot. Yeah, I got to think. It's the name of a cartoon character. Oh, how funny. Uh, it's the name of that big chicken hawk on uh, Leghorn. <laughs> it's called Leghorn. Uh, <laughs> the Warner okay, Brothers I, chicken. 
I I wouldn't even know. Okay, well, that, like, every day is a school day. Leghorn, yeah, okay. Uh, yeah, it's called Leghorn. Fabulous representation. I think it's around twenty dollars US. Okay, um, that I, I that's the one I take home. Uh-huh. Uh huh. There's one called New Wild N U E, uh, New Word W I L D E, and that is very uh, terroir driven. It's also okay. a sustainable brand in other words they, it's got a single label so the paper usage is low it doesn't have a cap uh, on the cork it's just just a corked wine no i like that i like that yeah so there's some interesting things out there we have a pinot noir club and uh, do you know, you? As you, yeah as you know the prices can be twenty dollars up to you know a hundred dollars easily of course yes that's the problem isn't it yes. you know so let's let's move on to you know you talked about this whole the french paradox how that changed things the study came out right that the french were smoking and eating and they weren't exercising yet they had a heart rate like their rate of heart disease was massively down compared to the americans and apparently when this came out they said it was because <laughs> the french were drinking like 16 gallons of wine a year compared to the americans two gallons and apparently wine sales went up i've looked this up so i can state this i didn't know this the sales went up for red wine like by 40 percent almost mm-hmm. overnight i love that Prior to uh, Morley Safer's uh, Mediterranean Lifestyle book, we sold more white than red. Oh, how and funny, really? <laughs> changed immediately and has never retracted. All right, since you're talking about consumption, just for, for fun trivia, oh, okay. one of my favorite trivia things, because the Calif- Americans just surpassed uh, the French a couple of years ago and have maintained this in oh, did total, they? Yeah, total oh. gallonage drunk. Now, d- not per capita, but total gallonage uh, we drink more in America than the French do. Okay. That being said, on a per capita basis, there's one country that drinks nine times more per capita than its closest competitor. Okay. That's the trivia question. Which country oh, drinks no, don't, nine I, times? I don't want to do that. I, I, I have okay. no idea. I don't want to play this game. It's the Vatican. Ah, that makes... Okay. <laughs> <laughs> So it pays to be religious. Good for them. You're right. You know, they just want to be closer to God. Oh, that's it's the same monks that, did, that were trying to figure out how to make Burgundy. So, you know, mm-hmm. well, not the same ones, but at least. Yeah. <laughs> they're just used to it. It's just part of living. Yeah, they had time on their hands. So oh, no one ever gets so that question, funny. right? But um, so, yes, the, you know, Cabernet, you know, I just learned something. I couldn't believe this the other day, that Cabernet in itself is a hybrid of Sauvignon Blanc and Cabernet Franc. You must know that, your wit set. But a crossing. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's yeah. a crossing. I had no idea mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that that was the case. But no one wants to talk about that because Cab no, yeah. is just seen as so prestigious, you know? Right. It's mm-hmm, the noble grape mm-hmm. of, of, of the wine world, so. Absolutely. Um, you know, we have a problem in California, with, particularly with Napa. The, the land has gotten so expensive and the lifestyle has gotten so expensive that, that, that the annual um, auction for wine is not is is to supply funds to families that that live and work that work in Napa but can't afford to live there. It's uh, it's so difficult. Oh, wow. and, okay. And if you think about uh, the cost of grapes, uh, the last number I have in my head is 2018. A ton of uh, Cabernet or decent Cabernet from Napa, let's say Oak Knoll, was eight thousand dollars a ton. And the rough calculation is that wine in the bottle is going to be eighty to ninety dollars minimum, a hundred bucks probably. So oh my God. who's drinking $100 Cabernets? Uh, does that make it any better than, than, than a Cabernet that's made for 20 Because the process of making the wines certainly um, at some point is going to be the same. In other words, if you're just paying attention to quality, it's, it's certainly more expensive than 
some of these co-ops and what they spend to make a bottle. But eventually, at some point, fermenting and storing and aging costs the same for a pedigreed $45 Cabernet and one that's 150 to $500. So what's the difference? Well, part of it's branding, part of it's the edit, you know, the label. Part of it's like I poured Camus last night for my family or I poured Ooh, yummy. Lafitte Rock Shield, <laughs> right? Uh, but the other part is, um, you know, Cabernet, I, I have a club, I have a Cabernet club from Napa. It's a Napa Cab Club or Napa Red Wine Club and the average bottle is $28. Okay, it's still way higher than the average consumer spend, but it's a little bit more reasonable right. than... True. Um, so it gives you a chance to taste the district without spending yeah. a ton of money, but mm-hmm. how many people mm-hmm. can go to Napa, go to a tasting room that which charges $85 just to taste, so you have the right to buy a wine for like $165. Pretty few. <laughs> yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So then we, we, we take it down to... All right, what about the other districts? Lodi, wonderful place for Cabernet. Paso Robles. Yeah, mm-hmm. Paso's probably the best value of Cabernet right now in California. Okay, cool. Um, I mean, you don't have to buy Austin Hope at $45 or, or, or Dow at that price, but there are some other brands. Ancient Peaks is one of the... I, I, had, I had him and Doug Filipponi in the show not too long ago, and I hadn't even tasted the wines prior, but wonderful wines in the $20 price range that are mm. not... Uh, they're not the extracted fruit forward profile that comes from the hot side of Paso. Yeah, it's unbelievable. I'm like fascinated. So you see that at Whole Foods Market, you see it at many markets. It's a rather large brand, but really good, really good quality, okay. really good, mm-hmm. really good uh, value. And it changes. By the way, guess what? It's going to change next year. <laughs> Every vintage is different, right? <laughs> well, yes. Of course, so currently, this vintage is good. Uh, I mean, but that's yes. the joy of wine. But I wanted you to touch on some Cab Sabs because, of course, just going back so people actually understand why you mentioned about the this red wine Mediterranean diet and I mentioned mm-hmm. about this French paradox and stuff is because of the polyphenols, okay? So everybody, (laughs) I keep on saying to everybody, you know, that there is a healthy aspect to wine when drunk in moderation, of course. And the famous polyphenol that's had the most research is resveratrol. And that, of course, you're going to get a lot more of that in the Cabernet Sauvignon than you will do in the Pinot Noir. You know, there's an ongoing argument about that. Uh, oh, I'm sure there is. Tanat is touted as yes. very big in that. Tanat is the number one, isn't it? Yeah, I think it is. But there's and an argument with that too. Sagrantino. Sagrantino yes. in Italy, which nobody ever... It's like nobody talks about Sagrantino. It's like nobody knows exists. That's a really funny point. I was on a, I was on a radio show last Christmas and um, the gentleman lives in Texas and he had gone to one of the one of the wineries I've been to actually in Texas and he goes did you taste that Sargento oh, Sargento <laughs> and I said you know and it's his show so I can't correct them <laughs> oh dear oh no how embarrassing so what did you say I said uh, I did not have a chance to taste theirs I kept the word out uh, but there yeah, are many yeah, yeah. in California. There are many in in in, um, in Italy, uh, just south of Tuscany, where Montefalco, where, this, where the, you know it's grown mm-hmm. prolifically, that you should try as well. And so I sent him a bottle, uh, to, so he could taste it next to his Texas version, uh, and I still never corrected him. <laughs> so. you, you you needed to send him the bottle and then write in highlighted words. Yes. Enjoy your Sagrantino. Sagra. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> but it is, it's weird because it's a wine that is, obviously Italians will know about it, but it's got such power, such yep. depth. And the tannin structure, of course, is humongous. But I suppose, you know, this is the wine of Umbria. And then when you say Umbria, everyone's like, well, where the hell is Umbria? Like you've mm -hmm. obviously already commented, yeah, go south of Tuscany. But it's not... It's just not well known. And I think there's hardly any produced. But, you know, these people say Barolo is tannic. And it's like, no, 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 no. This is no. going to dry your mouth. But obviously yeah. a nice piece of steak. And they've got such great flavors. So there you go, everyone. We've mentioned quite a lot of wines in this podcast, especially the podcast before. But go to look at Montefalco, which is just this beautiful hilltop town. Well, everywhere in Italy is beautiful. So... <laughs> So the mayor, the ex-mayor of Montefalco, his name is Valentino Valentini. Should be a movie star, right? Oh, but that's an original name. <laughs> so his, his winery is called Boccale. Mm -hmm. Fabulous Sagrantino. Fabulous stuff. Okay. To be honest, I have not had much Sagrantino wine simply for the fact that, you know, again, there's just not a lot of it out there. And hardly any of it comes to the UK, sadly. So, you know, everyone needs to look high and low to, to find some Sagrantino. You're not going to see in the supermarket, that's for sure. No, definitely not. But you need to be prepared for it. It's definitely yeah. not a, um, <laughs> it's not a summer sipper, everybody. It is not a summer sipper. But tannins actually as well, what's quite nice, considering the tannins in Uruguay, which of course is mm. where they're doing beautiful examples, now become their red grape variety. My God, the way they grow it, it's just really, really juicy. Mm -hmm. And the tannins are so mm. ripe that they don't mm. seem drying at all. So I urge everyone to to get some tannin from there. And then you go, you've got a healthy heart. Now, would you like some, would you like some health facts that I wrote down? Yes, let's play them out there. <laughs> okay. <laughs> So, red wine, apparent, in red wine, again, because this is where, you know, resveratrol, it's a protective chemical. But they have found, there is another, I guess, chemical, and I'm probably pronouncing it incorrectly, but it's called pisciatinol. That kind of sounds, yeah? Pisciatinol. Yeah, okay. sure. Let's go with that. So, pisciatinol. Yeah. And it inhibits new fat cells forming and prevents the mature fat cells from developing, which basically means, everybody, less abdominal fat mm -hmm. hmm. that's a that good one's one. a new one right that's a new one that i've heard of because of course let's be honest i'm always i think you would agree you'll always go with all the evidence and studies that suggests that red wine is healthy for you in moderation but you know of course there's new studies coming all the time we're going to pick the ones that we like right of course <laughs> whatever sells them but yeah, <laughs> exactly but I have to say it's really really interesting with the polyphenols you know we know the antioxidant we know the anti-inflammatory and I don't know more and more keeps on coming up and um, suggesting that there's there's wonderful benefits I found out another one that for women with menopause it can really help your your mood and your mental performance based on it doing something that's quite similar to estrogen in the body how's that well let me let me um let me let me lay something out here since you brought that up okay. menopause particularly. Okay. So mm -hmm. uh, this is a book you can't see it, but it's, you can Google it and you can mm -hmm. get it on eBay. It's called Wine mm -hmm. Is the Best Medicine. Oh, I like it already. It's by a French doctor, Doctor E. A. Murray. It was written in seventy-two or seventy-three. It was translated to English soon thereafter. And it's, okay. Uh, it's a and he was a legitimate MD as well as a, a homeopathic doctor, and he has uh, it's basically human ailments 
it's, it's probably let's see the book has got uh probably 100 pa- 150 pages it's okay. got human ailments and the curative french wine of course is a french doctor so there's things like mm-hmm. allergies anemia astergloriosis bronchitis <laughs> diarrhea uh-huh. fever gout hypertension okay. and menopause is one of them and since you brought it up we'll just talk about it so if i was to say what wine should you i'll give you three choices should you enjoy in order to help the condition of menopause it could be champagne it could be a young beaujolais or it could be a Saint-Emilion bordeaux what would be your guess well from what i've been saying Saint-Emilion because of the tannins and the resveratrol but then also champagne makes me really happy so emotionally <laughs> Well, you're right on, and, and most people get this wrong, but that's that's right. It's something they own, and then there's a dosage factor uh-huh. that goes with that. What do you think the dosage is? Um, so are we talking like in milliliters, like a glass, right? Glasses. Milliliters, yeah. Oh, glasses. <laughs> yes. Okay, so like what per day? Is he yes. does he give a dosage per day? Correct. Well, now I would obviously say from reading all the studies that. 125 milliliter glass maximum in the day but i think you're going to tell me it's more it's four i'm loving this doctor already i mean yeah. he sounds he sounds intelligent it's a great book so that and it says exactly what it says it's because <laughs> bordeaux wines from the Medoc region because they are rich in onatannins which act through the medium of the factor p on the resistance of the capillaries there you and go so uh menopause of fragility so that's that's actually looks like six glasses two glasses per meal three meals but it's a great oh book and, and, and sometimes it just says you know what it probably doesn't help you but you feel better anyway <laughs> <laughs> well no they've done they've done studies and they have looked to see about the blood flow being improved in the human brain by having red wine and very typically with young people there it doesn't do anything but when you are older so in your 50s and your 60s they see a massive difference and I think that's the same for when they talk about cardiac arrest um, and heart disease and things like that so quite clearly when you're young and you're healthy you can't use red wine as an excuse but certainly as you age the red wine actually by the way it works within your body really does help it creates the flow probably and right now for all you young people listening well obviously mentally you're going to feel good with a nice glass that's it and that's That's the the main thing Now, we just to kind of slowly sum up this episode, of course, you mentioned Sideways, the movie which had a massive effect, so people need to go and watch that. I actually did not enjoy it the first time. I found it really disappointing and boring, but then I came back to it a few years later, and I really appreciated the kind of dry, Mm -hmm. I don't know, strange humor. Mm -hmm. So you've got to be in the right mood for it, I think. Um... And then Bottle Shock, that came out in 2008. So that tells the story of the Judgment of Paris. Although there's quite a lot of mm, non-truths in there. Like one of the- It's a horrible, it's not even close. <laughs> I mean, but at least it kind of gives, it gives an idea if you like a movie. It's a good film. Actually, I quite enjoyed it. It's a really fun film, I think. Nice it's fun, light. But the, the facts are wrong and the players are wrong. And <laughs> uh, they, 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 you know, they took some literary license to tell the story. I had the producer on my show as well uh, of the thing. Never, by the way, the movie made no money. Uh, oh, did it not? Not never did well at all. And it actually prompted Joanne Dupuy, the woman I was speaking about, to write her little mm. 
autobiography about the other side of the story. And she's uh-huh. a wonderful wealth uh, she's on the podcast of what really happened. But the movie Bottle Shock in itself isn't a very good depiction of what it what it was. It's not, but it's at least a, it's interesting. It's interesting yeah, to find out the story. I mean, one, right? yeah, and one of the biggest shocks I found uh, was that in the movie they make out that Stephen Spurrier was like really supporting California. That the whole reason he did the tasting was because he believed so much in California, and he and he wanted to prove to the French that the wine was amazing. When actually, if you speak to well, sadly we can't anymore. But I have spoken to Stephen in the past, and of course, um, you have too. You've had him on the show. If you ask him that question, he'll say actually he was as surprised as anyone. He was open to doing the tasting, hence why he thought it was a good idea but he never thought that the California wine would win yeah no <laughs> and I think he got he got in a lot of trouble for that with the French a lot of trouble it was actually Patricia Gallagher's idea to expose the French judges and she was yeah. against the idea of pitting them against each other it was Steve's idea to do that but look how would that possibly be happened you've got hundreds of years of experience of French winemaking and then here come these upstarts and how could that possibly be you think, well, guess what? You know, we brought <laughs> some amazing winemakers from other parts of Europe that, uh, you know, that were able to turn the, those grapes and make the grapes. You know, wine is about farming. So, you know, you start with mm-hmm. the grape and, and we're able to produce nice grapes. So, that, yeah, I agree with you. He, he wanted nothing. He had nothing to do with the idea of it being successful. He just wanted to expose people. And he thought, oh, it would be fun to make a contest out of it. And, yeah. You know, <laughs> and the French just were so arrogant at the time that there was no way the Californians were going to win. There's no way. Mm, obvious. Yeah. And in fact, that one of the quotes <laughs> from the book, and, 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 and I went through my dad's newsletters from 1976, and he wrote about it in June. And one of the judges smelling one of the white wines, I think it was the Montalena, looked at one of the neighboring judges and said, oh, we're back in France again. So he's actually smelling a California Chardonnay, but was convinced wow. he was in Burgundy. I think it was Chablis or Merceau, and, and made the comment. And it was was wrong <laughs> so well no wonder some of them lost their jobs oh, yeah brilliant. but anyway exactly. so everyone needs to check out those movies anyway because they're wine movies are, are you into your wine films do you have any to suggest you no know, I, I i i don't watch <laughs> you know like i haven't watched the psalm thing um, oh uh, i mean everybody should well you don't need to i think you know how hard being a master psalm or doing your master of wines is right right sure very difficult but I have to say that some movie opens up a lot of people's eyes to the way you taste and blind taste and speed mm-hmm. taste. And it is pretty remarkable. And waking up at six o'clock in the morning and having to taste and the poor partners and wives and, and whatever, having to clean up all these spittoons like early in the morning because there was a late night tasting session in the apartment. And just, I mean, just following the four songs on that journey is just an incredible way to understand hardcore wine professionals just doing what they do best and trying to get to the top of their game. It's impressive. You know, what's interesting, and, and I, I think it's a very important part of, of the industry, the hospitality industry, uh, anybody should understand wines, particularly the person that a restaurant that's going to be pouring for you and recommending for you, that the life is difficult. And in the, in the 90s, in the two, early 2000s, before the recession here in America in the 2008, you know, there were six-digit jobs in Vegas, you know, being the head psalm, the buyer, that was a very prestigious thing to do, and it was really, really good money. And after the recession and then the proliferation of, of talented and, and qualified people, 
um, has made it much more difficult. And so the glamour of a movie like that, like you're going to learn all about his wine and, and then you're going to you know, be thrust into these amazing jobs is, doesn't exist really. But what does exist is the lifestyle that you take on as you get to enjoy and as I get to enjoy. It's, uh, it's, it's not an easy lifestyle in that it's, it's hard to make money in this industry all the way around from whether you're making it, selling it, or mm-hmm. pitching it. But one winemaker put it to me, he goes, I meet the most amazing people, I drink the most amazing wines, I eat the most amazing food, and I go to the most amazing places. And that, that you can't put money on that. The experiences yeah. that we get. It's not bad, right? Yeah. So we'll be poor forever, everyone, but we are having <laughs> cultural, beautiful experiences yeah, that even the rich can't pay for. Oh, dear. Absolutely. Very well, funny. I would say the one movie, I don't know many wine movies either. I'm definitely not a wine movie buff, but one that I have mentioned before in this podcast, and if you haven't gone to see it, and perhaps you should if you haven't, is Sour Grapes. You know, the one with all about this is the true story documentary of Rudy Kuniawan so the, oh, yeah. the fraudster the, and it's just incredible and there is one scene which I was just horrified seeing which was where they had confiscated all of the wine well some of the wine let's be honest because thousands of his bottles are still out there and people sellers but they'd confiscated a load and they were throwing it in a dumpster in a huge dumpster and all of these bottles are filled with juice and I'm thinking mm. still going to be absolutely delicious juice you know these people where they label when they label a bottle Chateau Mouton Rothschild well it's fake in terms of the fact that it's not the juice of Mouton Rothschild but he had an incredible mind to create you know this chemist he was able to put wines together to taste similar enough mm-hmm. so basically if you were drinking it you were like oh this is just a shit version of Mouton Rothschild but it was right. still pretty good so I'm thinking oh my god how much still delicious amazing wine is being thrown in the dumpster in my heart oh it was painful very um, very painful but um he was here in, he was my neighbor uh so to speak he was here in arcadia what was where my office is uh, oh. and you know the his house was foiled up the windows were foiled up they found all the labels and the old corks and stuff um wow, great okay. book uh great book that touches on rudy and a whole bunch of other improprieties in the wine industry and that's called tangled vines a woman named frances deaconspiel fabulous you stories are- you're great with the books. I'm, you know, you're great with the book recommendations. I think uh, it's really spectacular. Rudy's in there. Uh, Joe Franzia, who faked White's Zinfandel back in the '70s. Uh, what's his name? Anderson, the guy that burned down the Sausalito warehouse with all those amazing wines in it. Uh, it oh my you know, god! Okay, murder in, in the 1700s. I mean, he goes on. Okay, on. okay. It's a dangerous business. <laughs> <laughs> but we go to we get to go to nice vineyards. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But but you're right. You know the the, the, the lifestyle is is hard to uh, compete with, and the the knowledge base and the you know there's a mystery about wine, and we get to learn about it, and we, we take passion, and I think that's pretty special. That's what we do it for. No, exactly. I always say this: you pick up a bottle of wine, and each wine, each vintage, even the same vintage, will be slightly different, and maybe on a different day, and the way you feel, and then think about what the winemaker was thinking, and what happened in that the story of that vintage from bud burst all the way to the moment they picked it, and the struggles, and think about the vineyard dog. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> there is. There's so much in that one bottle of wine. 
thank you, Paul. You have literally brought so much interesting information, loads of facts, and I've um, really enjoyed listening to you go on about the uh, the modern history of uh, wine drinking in the US. So thank you for that. Uh, thank you for having me on the show. This has been a fabulous time, and I hope we can oh, do it again. it's been a good chat. I think we can. Have a very lovely weekend, and I'll speak to you soon. Cheers. Take care. So I hope you enjoyed that episode and that you've learned something new or there's a few wines in there that you're going to go and explore or try. Now to finish off with, I will leave you with a wine quote, but just to be a little bit different today and because I can, instead of me giving you the wine quote, I shall play you the iconic moment from the Sideways movie and I warn you if you're not in the mood for any swearing, perhaps turn the volume down now. Just try to be your normal humorous self, okay? The guy you were before the tailspin. Do you remember that guy? People love that guy. And don't forget, your novel is coming out in the fall. Oh, really? How exciting. What's it called? Come here, Moss. Do not sabotage me. If you want to be a oh. fucking lightweight, then that's your call. But do not sabotage me. Oh, aye, aye, Captain, you got it. And if they want to drink Merlot, we're drinking Merlot. Oh, no, if anybody orders Merlot, I'm leaving. I am not drinking any fucking Merlot! Okay, okay, <laughs> relax, Miles. Jesus, no Merlot. Did you bring your Xanax? So there you have it. If you have not watched the Sideways movie, do get on it. And remember, regardless of what Miles thinks, Merlot is your friend, <laughs> right? Well, next week, I have an amazing episode for you. I'm chatting with Laura Feluga, who is the granddaughter of Livio Feluga. This winery has brought us some of the best white wines of Italy. They are based in Friuli Venezia Giulia. So we are going to talk about the northeast of Italy, the white grape varieties from this region, and you will learn why Livio Feluga was the rebuilder of the Friuli wine tradition. Amazing history, amazing wine. So tune in next week. That is it for today. Thank you as always for tuning in and listening. Thank you for all of you amazing people that are writing in, giving me comments, giving me feedback, sharing the podcast over your social media platforms. If you haven't subscribed, do it, do it now. If you haven't liked, please do that. And if you have any opportunity to leave a comment on your podcast app, especially Apple Podcasts, please, it does make the podcast more discoverable. So you know what is happening next week. Have a beautiful few days until then. I raise my glass. Cheers to you.